Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When people think of innovations in the criminal justice system, the first thing that tends to leap to mind is the spectrum of new technologies that are used to much more clearly establish the guilt or innocence of those being charged with a crime. And while those are obviously hugely important developments in their own right, a sometimes overlooked and equally important aspect of how our modern criminal justice systems are evolving concerns the question of sentencing. And to understand the details of that, there are few better people to sit down and chat with than Julian Roberts from the University of Oxford, one of the world's leading experts on sentencing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background in terms of how you became interested in the law in general and criminal justice in particular. Sure. So I was in graduate school and I had a supervisor who worked in the field of criminology. Um, and he got me interested in sentencing as a field. And I then started working for a royal commission mm-hmm. on sentencing. And it rapidly became clear to me that sentencing was a really complex, rich subject for philosophers, criminologists, lawyers. Uh, so I focused on sentencing and then... How did he get you interested in sentencing? How did that happen? I did some reading and I was uh, discussing these readings with him and he was then on that commission. And that uh, sort of kindle my interest. Mm. And of course, like everyone else, I read the news and there's always an interesting sentencing case in the news and there were many in the news then as now. Um, And I never really looked back and I sort of, rather than studying criminal justice and then focusing on sentencing, I studied sentencing and enlarged my interest to criminal justice. But sentencing remains at the heart of my scholarship and teaching uh, and research. And has the field, just in terms of uh, the sociology of the field, has it changed uh, significantly or not? It's expanded. So the, the number of peer review journals that will uh, publish material on psych and law or criminology and sentencing or this, the study of sentencing, empirical or, or legal, has expanded hugely in 30 years. Mm. So a lot more people working in the field. We know a lot more about sentencing, about what works, what doesn't work, um, about sentencing procedures and so on. So I think it's, it's expanded greatly and there's also been a, a move, as you would expect, towards a more multidisciplinary approach. So socio-legal approaches generally, where mm. lawyers work with sociologists or criminologists um, is the norm these days, and of course we have a lot of joint degrees, JD, PhD degrees in the US, 
uh, and sometimes people doing a JD and then following it with a PhD or vice versa. Um, and that's all been t to the benefit, I think, of the criminal justice system and of the sentencing process. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more um, about some questions related to, to sentencing in particular. Um, so one question is this whole issue regarding repeat offenders. And it's fairly common for, for the man on the street, and I consider myself very much the man on the street here, so it's not difficult for me to go uh, too far to get the man on the street's perspective. It's, it seems uh, to be very much the case that in most cases, if not even all cases, repeat offenders get uh, harsher and harsher sentences. Um, and I suppose one question is, why, why, why is that? And is that effective? And well, I guess those are two questions. So one question is, is, uh, is why is that? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a question which lies at the heart of sentencing. Whether you should take into account at sentencing the offender's prior convictions, for which he's obviously already been punished, um, served his sentence. Why now, when he's been reconvicted, should he do additional time for those prior adjudications for which he has already paid the price? Um, and there's an element there, or a claim at least, that this is an example of double punishment. Mm. You know, I robbed the bank five years ago, I got 18 months in prison, I did my time, and now I've been reconvicted of fraud, and I'm getting an extra six months for the bank robbery five years ago. So the question is why, and you're right. The intuitive response is let's punish repeat offenders more harshly. Uh, and it's really unclear why. Uh, why should we? Uh, one answer would be, well, if we punish them more harshly, they'll be less likely to re-offend. Um, and repeat offenders, people with prior convictions, uh, are definitely a higher risk to re-offend mm. as a category. So the argument runs, the, utilitar the utilitarian argument, that harsher sentences imposed on recidivists will be more likely to prevent crime in the future. Is there evidence to support that? The evidence is pretty thin on this. So you have to look into the evidence or the research on reoffending. Why do people reoffend? Why does somebody who has served a prison sentence of 18 months uh, been out in the community um, for a year. Uh, what makes them reoffend? What returns them to crime? And there's a variety of factors, as you could, Im you might imagine. Some of those factors are personal. Some of them have to do with society. Uh, does he have a job? Is he working? Is he uh, employed? Does he have a family to support? Does he have a social network? Who's he associating with? Does he have so-called criminal associations? So there are factors which will tip him towards or away from reoffending. Um, and in that mix of factors, one variable might be his apprehension of additional punishment upon conviction. But it's unlikely to have a huge influence. So. The general position or the general summary of that literature would be that there may be a marginal or modest deterrent effect or incapacitative effect associated with harsher sentences, uh, but it's not the primary factor which is going to deter somebody 
And I could imagine that there might be a wealth of data insofar as one could compare different countries and different systems where there are greater and uh, where there are more and harsher, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the words, <laughs> one, sorry, I'll, I'll try that again. One can compare different systems, I would imagine, in, in, in principle, where there are harsher and less harsh punishments for those who, who are repeat offenders, and then see if, if the level of recidivism was correlated with that. Have these sorts of studies been done? Yeah, comparative studies of that kind have been attempted, but there are not many of them. But we can, we can make some observations. In the US, where the recidivist premium, where the additional punishment for prior crimes is strongest, uh, you might expect recidivism rates to be lower. Mm. Now, in some US states, for repeat offenders, their prior offending plays a much greater role in determining the sentence than the crime they've just committed. Yeah. One example would be in a couple of states, 98% of the sentence length is accounted for by the prior offenses and 2% by the current offense. 98%? For the more serious recidivist offenses. So those are states and jurisdictions where the prior crimes count for a lot more than the current crime. Now many people think that's contrary to some sense of justice. But the evidence is that the recidivism rates in those jurisdictions is actually no lower, mm. possibly higher, than jurisdictions in Europe, for example, England and Wales or on the continent, where we do punish repeat offenders more harshly, but nothing like the degree that you find in the US. Mm. We don't have a definitive answer to the question you've just raised, but the preponderance of evidence suggests that if you want to prevent reoffending, simply adding on a lot more time is not necessarily going to do it. Right. And don't they have this, uh, this crazy bit of legislation in California, at least they used to, this three strikes and you're out uh, law, yeah. which seemed, seemed the, 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 the ultimate or the, the most disastrous, depending on one's perspective, yeah. way, to, way to look at this, so that it didn't even matter which crime you were committing. Uh, if you had had two prior convictions, then there would be this mandatory minimum significant minimum incarceration. Sure. Baseball sentencing, three strikes and you're out. <laughs> Started in, the, in California uh, and the third, th the third felony conviction triggered uh, either life imprisonment or a lengthy prison sentence. And the third felony didn't have to be a particularly serious felony, so there were famous examples we've all read about of somebody stealing a bicycle from a, a shed attached to a house. This becomes domestic burglary. Uh, and that triggers the third strike. Those uh, extreme sentencing laws have generally been discredited and a number of states have rolled them back. Mm. The three strikes laws in other countries, Australia, England and Wales, um, New Zealand and Canada, tend to be more, much more modest. What, what, what are they? Because I'm not even familiar with those. I, I've, I've heard of the, um, the legislation that you were just describing in California, but I, I, I wasn't even aware that, that three strikes types of legislations existed elsewhere. Sure. I mean, impaired driving is a good example. Many countries have repeat offending statutes whereby the third or the second impaired drunk driving conviction triggers a higher penalty. In England and Wales, the third conviction for domestic burglary will trigger a particular sentence. I see. But it would have to be 
the 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 second or third or, or what have you conviction of the same type of usually of, of, of it, it would have to be a pattern so the third domestic burglary the third uh, impaired driving conviction right the implication presumably being that the individual hasn't corrected his or her behavior from uh, yes that's times. right I see um, and we can talk a little bit later hopefully about um, broader picture about uh, what, what one wants to achieve in terms of um, incarceration or treatment or whatever, what, uh, the, the overall benefits to society from um, various treatments and, and, and the rest. Um, so another issue which has confused me a little bit is this notion of plea bargaining. This idea that if somebody pleads guilty to a crime, then they are, uh, in many cases, eligible for or offered a much lesser sentence than they would ordinarily have. I can see that that would be useful in terms of clearing up a backlog in the courts. It's more efficient and so forth. But it, I'm wondering if that's... Um, the most just way to actually proceed. And so I can imagine that that's fairly controversial or not so much. Maybe that's not a question. But Plea bargaining is one of the most controversial elements of criminal justice, of sentencing in the adversarial world. It's particularly controversial in the US where um, prosecutors who are often usually elected rather than appointed, as they are in other common law countries, uh, prosecutors have a great deal of power, a um, great deal of discretion to deal, to negotiate mm. with the, the attorney for the accused. And the criticism is that they uh, exploit and in some cases abuse that discretion and um, much harsher penalties are imposed on defendants who elect to go to trial and require the state to proceed to convict or attempt to convict. Now, this is why some people call it the trial penalty rather than a, uh, a plea bargained sentence. People who exercise their constitutional right to a trial by, by their peers um, are de facto punished. Are punished additionally. So the, the trial penalty obviously attracts a lot of criticism. But if we back up a little bit and just think about what's going on here on a, on a slightly higher conceptual level, what we're talking about is, a ne is negotiated justice um, and not negotiated necessarily in a slippery or inappropriate way. But there is an incident which has given rise to a criminal charge. And uh, why would we not at least permit the state to discuss with the accused or the suspect options in which this particular incident may be resolved to the benefit of the alleged victim and of the state and so on. In everyday life when somebody wrongs us in some informal non-criminal capacity we generally talk about things. So a strictly legalistic model where every criminal charge results in an appearance in court and a trial on the facts uh, is not necessarily the most effective or appropriate model. So, uh, in principle, I think there's nothing wrong with 
allowing the state, which is prosecuting the case on, on behalf of the community, to discuss with the defendant and his or her legal representatives the options on the table. If a defendant wishes to forego uh, their right, the constitutional right to, to a trial, um, perhaps the state should offer some reward for that, or there should be some benefit accruing to that individual. And so that's what it, it plea bargaining is about. It's about these negotiations between the state and the accused. So two questions. Um, I could imagine that there might be some uh, different countries that allow plea bargaining up to a certain limit of particular offenses. So what you said strikes me as reasonable insofar as there might be more appropriate ways of dealing with minor felonies or, or, or misdemeanors or what have you. Um, but if somebody is accused of murder or homicide, uh, I can imagine that there might be some places that would say, well, no, this is something that, that uh, we need to look at through the light of um, the, the, the proper full judicial system. Is that the case? Are there some places that have a limit to, to plea bargaining in terms of the severity of the crime? Well, it's certainly the case that the less serious the offence or the allegation, the more likely you are to have some negotiated resolution. Um, ADR, alternate dispute resolutions, thing, things of that nature, uh, reflect this approach that we may not need to invoke the criminal sanction, we may not in need to invoke the criminal trial. Uh, and it's certainly also true that as this, the crime becomes more serious and if there's a personal injury involved, um, then the state may wish to exercise greater control over the proceeding. Uh, but even for more serious crimes, uh, the facts may be in dispute and, until quite late in the day. Um, and if uh, the defendant wish elects to enter a plea to a lesser and included charge, and if the state feels that that plea is not inconsistent with the facts that are going to be um, discussed and contested at trial, then there may be uh, a plea entered to a lesser and included charge as a result of these negotiations, and that would be what, what many people would call a plea. Mm. plea bargain or a plea negotiation. So what you've described to me sounds reasonable in theory. Um, then there's the question of how it works in practice and my understanding is that many people are of the view that um, accused individuals face significant amounts of pressure um, to uh, to engage in the plea bargaining process, so much so that they might, in fact, uh, elect to do so even if they're even if they're not guilty, um, so as to minimize the risk of a much more severe penalty and so forth. And that, of course, would would represent uh, a rather significant systemic potential for a miscarriage of justice. Is is that is that view? gaining in popularity or recognition or awareness or not so much? <laughs> That's a long question. <laughs> I specialize <laughs> so, so in long questions. So we're just stopping there. <laughs> um, yep. So, at the heart of plea bargaining is the 
existence of plea-based sentencing discounts. So if there was no reward for pleading guilty to a criminal charge, then there would be no discussions about whether to enter a plea or not. So we need to look at the, at the magnitude of the reductions. And of course, jurisdictions that operate a massive reduction for people who are willing to enter a guilty plea are likely to come un under criticism for possibly eliciting wrongful convictions. The accused is facing 30 years in prison. If he pleads guilty, it comes down to 10. Massive reduction for the guilty plea. He may feel pressured uh, to enter the plea if he has prior convictions. This may mean that the conviction following trial will be even greater, the penalty will be even greater. In accordance with what you were saying earlier. Exactly. So the magnitude of the reduction that we offer defendants who enter a plea of guilty is critical to the debate. Mm -hmm. If we operate a modest reduction, as is the case, in my opinion, in England and Wales, then the chance that an accused will enter a guilty plea when he in fact is not guilty of the crime as charged, I think is relatively remote. The danger still exists. So the danger arises from having a lot of prosecutorial discretion and also a very substantial reduction for a guilty plea. But if we manage those two, if we uh, place limits on the degree to which the prosecutor can bargain or discuss with the attorney for the defendant, and if the reduction for the guilty plea is relatively modest as well, then the rights of the defendant are well protected or better protected. Right. Well, one of the things which surprised me in a previous conversation that I had with Nita Farahani in the United States was the awareness that the information and the discussions and the simply put, the data that surrounds plea bargaining was not something that was accessible after the fact. Now I understand that there's a need for a sense of confidentiality so that people can speak freely and so forth, but I also have this belief that unless you have a clear sense of what actually happened, um, it's very difficult to, to do sufficient analysis to understand whether the system is working or whether it's not working or, or in, to what extent it's not working or, or what have you. So this strikes me as an obvious problem, that if, if there isn't uh, uh, data that people can actually examine and, and look at, there will be no ability to actually have an awareness of, of, of what's happening. Is, is that sense of plea bargaining being a black box, as she put it, is that the case everywhere or is it primarily the United States? It's primarily the United States because plea bargaining is largely, not exclusively, but largely an American or, or a North American phenomenon because it also happens in, in Canada too. Uh, and the inscrutability um, of the negotiations is one common criticism. So the advocates, the attorneys discuss their various options and one will liaise with his client and the other will liaise with his colleagues and so on, or her colleagues. And at the end of the day, a, a plea will be entered and there might be a joint submission on sentence. Both parties 
will approach the bench or will submit a joint submission. We are in agreement that an 18-month term is appropriate. Uh, under those circumstances, the general approach of the court is to approve that joint submission, and it would be unusual for a court to go behind the submission and ultimately impose something which is much longer sure. or much shorter. This would in fact undercut uh, the plea bargaining process. So we don't really know how the arrangement was arrived at. We don't know what the parties discussed. Victims also feel excluded when the defendant is facing one charge and pleads guilty to a lesser um, crime and mm. receives a lesser penalty. So opening up the plea bargaining process, uh, subjecting it to some external or judicial scrutiny is, is one of the solutions that's been proposed. So have the parties um, maybe, uh, if not discuss, at least air in open court uh, the consequences of their discussions and why they've reached the joint position that they have. Right. Or at least have somebody at some level, perhaps uh, in a confidential position, be able to analyze the situation, to be able to take a high-level view and say, are we going in the right direction or the wrong direction? As you had pointed out, if, if there is a sufficiently large distinction between the potential rewards for, for engaging in the plea bargaining process, um, then this could lead, at least in theory, systemically, the apparatus seems to be in place for a greater likelihood of a miscarriage of justice. And this is obviously something that people want to avoid at all, at all costs. So it, I would feel more comfortable just as a citizen who's outside of the whole process to think, well, somebody's looking at this. Somebody has a sense of, oh my goodness, we're going in the wrong direction in terms of a society. But if, if it's structured in such a way that uh, nobody has access to it, um, then we don't even know if it's getting, we're just left to speculate and we're left to, to listen to particular anecdotal accounts of some extreme case where some newspaper writes this as opposed to that. And that seems to me to be counterproductive on a societal level. Yeah, well we do know a fair bit about the, the plea bargaining process. It's been the subject of a great deal of empirical research in the US in particular. Um, qualitative and quantitative. So we do know about a fair degree about how it works. But the question and the point you make about scrutiny of the or some kind of oversight on the process is, is, is well founded. Uh, and one solution would be to have the court uh, unpick um, the deal in a sense to understand what's going on. Some people have argued that the victim should have some input or even uh, some approval over um, the ultimate um, sentence which has been reached in this way. Mm. It goes back to the adversarial model, however, if the parties are in agreement, the parties being the state and the defendant represented by his advocate, if they are in agreement, the general position in the adversarial system is to let the outcome stand. But of course, a court retains ultimately, ultimately the authority to say, uh, no, that 18-month sentence that you've um, put before me in a joint submission is not appropriate. I'm imposing 24 months, and then the parties can appeal if they, if they so desire. Uh, but you're right, the hidden, um, the sub-rosa nature of the discussions is something which many people find troubling. You mentioned the, the role 
or the involvement of the victim with respect to plea bargaining on several occasions. Um, presumably, there's a, one can go beyond plea bargaining per se and talk about what sort of role or involvement the victim should have in the entire sentencing process. So tell me a little bit more about that. So this is probably the most troubling question in the sentencing process. And again, the jurisdictions take different approaches. How much influence should the victim have? What kind of a role should the victim play uh, at the sentencing hearing or in the sentencing process? And with many questions in the area of sentencing, there are different opinions. On one side, uh, some people will claim that the victim should have a central role. He or she, as, uh, as the wronged person, the person who's not just been harmed, but the um, victim of a criminal wrong, should have um, some input into the sentencing imposed. Uh, because although the judgment is R versus Jones, uh, it's not the state that's been directly harmed. Uh, the prosecution is on behalf of the community, but there's often an individual victim. So victims' advocates say that victims should have an input, and that input is often through the form of a victim impact statement or a victim personal statement, as it's called in England and Wales. And in that statement, the victim deposes evidence for the sentencing court to consider, and that statement summarizes the harm they've sustained or their family has sustained the loss, the injury, and that helps a court calibrate the appropriate sentence. Now, in the US, victim impact statement regimes often go a lot further, and the victim is encouraged or allowed not just to talk about the impact of the crime, but that they, they are also given the opportunity to recommend a specific sentence. Mm. Uh, that's a particularly or a uniquely American approach. It doesn't exist in any other common law country or any other country of which I'm aware. In other common law jurisdictions like England, Wales, Canada or Australia, victims depose a victim impact statement. It speaks to the impact of the crime and says nothing else. And if the victim makes a specific recommendation, well, I think he should go to prison for five years, uh, the court will disregard that or the prosecutor will edit out that statement so it doesn't even come before a court. Right. So there are competing perspectives. Some people think that victims should have a lot of power at sentencing or influence and others feel they should have a very circumscri circumscribed role. So, so give me the argument for why a victim should have power because I'm having trouble with this. So uh, not that I'm unsympathetic to victims obviously as a, as a rule. But my perspective is the victim should describe in, in as accurate detail as possible the impact that the crime has had on him or her. And then it's up to the judicial system, namely the judge, to be able to understand and, or I mean, first one has to ascertain whether or not the individual is guilty, right? So we're right. past that point. Yeah. Um, and then it's up to the, to the judge with the full knowledge of the, the spectrum of, of punitive measures that, that are within the law to make that, to make that judgment in presumably an impartial and, and knowledgeable fashion. Um, so if I, were, um, if I were a criminal, which is the only way I can uh, imagine this sort of thing happening, and I were to have created a crime, I would want 
the sentencing to be done in such a way that it would be impartial and knowledgeable and within previous precedent. Um, so the argument that somebody who feels uh, aggrieved, justifiably or otherwise, um, and, and, is, uh, and is upset should somehow be able to weigh in on the, the legal issue of how much time I should serve or whether I should serve time at all or how much I should be fined or what have you strikes me as somewhat incongruous. I don't understand why that should be the case. Yeah, so you've conflated two things there. There's victim impact with respect to the crime and its seriousness and the harm. Um, and the second thing you've raised is the victim expression of the appropriate sentence. So let's deal with those two separately. And the argument for allowing the victim to speak to sentence in terms of the impact of the crime is that the victim is best placed. If I've been sure. severely assaulted, there are two ways that you as a court could determine the gravity of the assault. One is through the prosecutor reading the police report, medical report, summarizing them for you. The other way is that you could hear it direct from me. Sure. So I'm going to tell you, as the uh, sentencing authority, exactly what happened. If there's no trial, if it's a, a guilty plea, then there will have been no evidence about this. So at the sentencing hearing, I will tell you how right. much I've been harmed, and that may take a bit of time, and it will involve the harm to other people and the time off work, and it's not right. necessarily straightforward. That part I get. I understand. Yeah. Some people, some people object to even that. They say that oh, the victim right. impact statement, um, as I've just described it, may be quite subjective, uh, and that a more objective representation through the prosecution should be submitted to the court. So it's not totally uncontroversial. Mm. But that's one issue, whether the victim should be allowed to speak to the court directly at the sentencing hearing or offer a statement describing the harm. And then should the um, attorney for the defense advocate should he or she have the opportunity to cross-examine me on my statement or upon my oral um, evidence. That's one issue. The, the, the second issue, you're right, is more controversial. Why should I, as the crime victim, even of a particularly serious crime, have the right to say, well, I think 10 years in prison is the appropriate disposition, Your Honor. I've thought about it very carefully, and I've looked up a couple of sentencing books. Uh, and I think the argument there is much harder to, to defend. Uh, the extreme victim's rights, rights advocate would, would have the view that as the most affected party, I should at least be able to make a submission on the sentence. So victim's advocates would say, what happens at a sentencing hearing? The probation officer will probably have, if not a re sentence recommendation, some advice as to the appropriate disposition, whether the offender is amenable to probation or not. This is a common uh, issue in the US. Um, the defense advocate, the attorney for the uh, offender, will have a position on sentence, what he or she thinks is in the best interest of their client. The prosecution will have a submission on sentence. Why shouldn't the victim, who in fact is much closer uh, to the crime than these three individuals, uh, why, why might he or she not be able to make a submission on sentence? That's the argument. Mm. It hasn't really been accepted in any country other than the US. 
uh, and even in, across the U.S. Practices. I was going to ask that. Is it state by state? Or? It's state by state, and of course the, the federal jurisdiction will consider victim impact statements as well. And there's, there's variability. But in certain states, victims will have the right to depose a statement wherein they advocate for a particular sentence, or indeed uh, to submit a statement to a parole board opposing the release of the prisoner on parole. Mm. So this is a manifestation of the greater power that victims have in the criminal justice system in the US compared to, say, Australia or Canada or, or England and Wales. Right. You mentioned a parole board, so one question which uh, comes to mind if one thinks about it a little bit is, um, what's the point of parole anyway? I mean, one could imagine a, a, a scenario whereby somebody sentenced to X years in prison, they, they, they do their time, uh, and, then they're, and then they're released. Um, why, why do we even need this, um, this extra degree of freedom, as it were, to enable people to have early release and, 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 and have to go through parole if they don't have early release and so forth? What, what's that all about? So parole's a controversial subject, as we all know. Um, somebody receives a nine-year prison sentence, why should they not spend nine years in prison? Uh, they can be told that on January the 1st, nine years from now, if they're sentenced on January the 1st, they will be walking out of the prison. So what's wrong with that? And what's wrong with that is that it treats the offender as an object. It says, the only thing we're concerned about is punishing you for the crime. We're going to do that by putting you in prison for nine years and we don't care if you spend nine years improving yourself or uh, making great efforts towards rehabilitation uh, or, or if you just want to sit in your cell. Uh, we won't treat you as an individual, we'll just give you a nine-year sentence. Now, uh, pretty well every jurisdiction has abandoned that position if, it, if, it, if they ever had it. The reason we have parole is that we put people in prison to punish them for their crimes, for their offenses, but we also attempt to work with them, to encourage them to rehabilitate themselves, to take steps towards reformation and reintegration. And that's done in order to prevent further reoffending when they are released from prison. So it's done in our interests, it's done in their interests, and it's done in the interests of victims more generally because if people come out of prison worse than they went in, or know better than they went in, mm. the outcome is likely to be more victims. So that's why we have parole. We have parole because it, it's, it makes a lot of sense. It helps reintegrate, it helps encourage reintegration into the community. But I can imagine that one principal difficulty would be that it necessarily requires a degree of judgment. And once you get into this area where you, you incorporate some sense of judgment, you have to handle um, things on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, it allows, obviously, tautologically, for some level of flexibility. But on the other hand, um, it's harder to systematize. Right. I mean, presumably you have this, this tension that arises that if you say, right, well, a very easy way to ensure some degree of fairness, at least, is to say there's no such thing as parole. If you, if you, if you get a sentence of X years, you have to spend X years behind bars. On the other hand, if you have this degree of freedom that allows for some flexibility to encourage people to 
engage in behavior that would uh, increase the likelihood of them rehabilitating themselves and so forth, then you're, you're muddying the waters to the extent where you're devolving quite a bit of power to other authorities that have to then have some degree of oversight to make sure if, if they're behaving correctly. Um, and it becomes harder, I would think, maybe I'm wrong, but it, would, it, it becomes harder to get a clear sense of what's working and what's not working in various different places. Would you agree with that or would you disagree? With well, you started by talking about it requires an exercise of judgment. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the criminal justice system is a system predicated on the exercise of judgment, on the exercise of discretion from beginning to end, from soup to nuts, we're talking about individual, individuals making decisions and exercising some limited and guided discretion, whether it's a police officer, a prosecutor, a sentencing court, or a parole board. So judgment's all already there. We just need to ensure that we don't throw fairness and consistency overboard in our pursuit, for example, of rehabilitation. So the way to achieve a, a safe and consistent and fair parole system is to allow release to be determined by clear criteria uh, and to allow the parole board or to, to, to require the parole board to exercise its judgment, its discretion in accordance with the rule of law with clear criteria which are known in advance by the prisoner and by the community and victims uh, and, then they, and then they will make a reasoned decision. Mm. The critique of parole, uh, going back to the 60s and 70s, uh, was a critique of an indeterminate sentence, effectively, when the prisoner had no idea when he was getting out of prison. His release was... Well, he had an upper limit, presumably. Yeah, uh, but his release could have been quite early or quite late, and it would be a decision taken by... Uh, an inscrutable uh, parole board, uh, people by political appointees with no necessarily, uh, n not any necessarily, no, let's, let's start that one again. Um, where do you want to take that one from? The um, second part of the answer, I guess. Sure. Yeah. You, can, you, can, you can just, uh, well, well you, can, you could just uh, start from when I said no upper limit, so. Uh, yeah. so. Yeah, so in the old days, parole was determined by a parole board, which was usually people by uh, political appointees. The criteria for release were very nebulous. The prisoner could be released relatively early or very late or never. Um, it was perceived to be unfair, unprincipled. But we, we've moved a fair bit from that, and when we now, uh, in many jurisdictions, follow a more judicial model, that there are cr clear criteria for release, that the parole board effectively uh, follows a judicial approach. The prisoner is represented. Um, the evidence against him or the material which may justify his continued detention and denial of parole can be subject to adversarial scrutiny and so on. Uh, so we have, not necessarily as much as we should have, but we have developed um, procedural protections that make the parole system a bit fairer. But it still, of course, comes under criticism and victims say, well, why should the offender be released after potentially one-third, which it is in some countries? Um, there are still questions of fairness and predictability and proportionality. But I think we generally rejected a model which says 
we're putting you in prison for nine years and throwing the key away. That mm. makes no sense at all. Well, and I, I think we're, we're dancing around, uh, maybe dancing around is too pejorative a term, but I, I think one of the key issues, which is, at least for me, the elephant on the table, is what's the whole point of what, what we're doing anyway? Uh, and it seems to me, from my layman's perspective, that there are, there are two principal perspectives. There are the people who believe somebody's committed a crime and they should be punished, first and foremost. And that's the job of the, of the uh, judicial system, to punish people who've committed a crime. And then if you, if you push them further, they'll say, well, they should be punished because um, it might serve as a deterrent or, or it's something that the, the victims have a moral... Uh, um, I, I guess there's a, there's a moral argument that the, that the victims should see someone punished or so forth. Um, and one tends to see that sort of attitude manifesting itself more in, in places like the United States and in places that are uh, particularly um, conservative in the United States. All right. Um, so there's the sense that we want to put somebody away. We want to exercise a death penalty. We want to, th th these sorts of ideas, which have, um, I, I think, there's a sense of wanting to protect society from these people, from the criminals. That is the convicted criminals. But but more to the point, there's this. There seems to be this strain, at least from my perspective, that these people should be punished, and it's our job to punish them, and we shouldn't be soft on criminals, and 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 we should lay down the law and so forth. All my words, right? Um, and then there's the idea that, well, somebody's committed a crime, and what we're really interested in doing is we're really interested in ensuring that they don't uh, become recidivists, that they don't commit crimes again, that, that perhaps they can be rehabilitated, that, that it's in society's interest not to put them away, uh, per se, but to deal with the situation as best as possible so as to avoid a um, future occurrence of, of the crime. And it seems to me these things are somewhat in tension in the system as a, as a lay person looking at it. So first of all, would you agree that, it, uh, that at least there are many people who look at the world the way I do, or I'm not some lone individual? And, that, uh, and secondly, that there is some merit to the idea that there are these two strands of, of sentencing and, the, and, the, and, the, and criminal justice that are, not, that are somewhat at odds with one another. Well. You've painted a, a bleaker or a, a more Manichaean portrait of criminal justice. There are certainly are people who wish to lay a heavy emphasis on punishment and others who are more concerned about prevention. But I don't think the most punitive um, member of the public would say, all I want to do is punish and I really don't care whether he reoffends or whether he's rehabilitated, or I don't care what happens to him at all, I don't give a damn about that. So you haven't spent much time in Texas, clearly. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, and I think that there is research on uh, southern states, public opinions in southern states, and you'd be surprised. There is a punitive streak, there is strong support for the death penalty, but the folks down there are also interested in redemption for the offender who wishes to turn his life around. Uh, so. I think the get tough gang or mob, or as you've sort of represented that view, um, are not indifferent to prevention and rehabilitation. And on the other hand, people who want to rehabilitate offenders and prevent 
crime through crime prevention and various other initiatives, they're not totally uninterested in punishment. So the two are together in the system, let's face it. The system is attempting to punish people, to hold them accountable for the offence of conviction and also to prevent further offending and that may be achieved through a variety of means such as rehabilitation or incapacitation or deterrence. Uh, we're trying to do a number of things and this is of course what makes criminal justice and sentencing in particular very complicated uh, because we don't have a single sole objective. We're trying to punish and prevent at the same time. Mm. So I'm not sure from a philosophical position what the point of punishment is. I understand feeling indignant and I understand feeling wrong. But it's, it seems, it, let, me, let me give you a, a, perhaps it's inappropriate for me to be asking this question, so if it is, just let me know. But imagine I had a magic pill. And imagine I was in a situation where I could give such a magic pill to an individual who had created, who, who had committed an inappropriate act, who had committed a criminal act um, through a lack of awareness, through a lack of understanding, through a lack of empathy. And I was able to give that individual uh, a magic pill um, so that that individual would later say, oh my goodness, I didn't realize what it is that I was doing and I would never have done that and how could I possibly have behaved in, in, in such, a, such a ridiculous way. If that was true, then it seems to me that um, it would be inappropriate to be punishing that individual. Or would you disagree with that? Yeah, uh, well, we'll have a, a break on this point. Sure. Um, well, we, you know, we, can, we can move on. And we can you see, that, that's later. an interesting comment, a sort of scenario. I'd like to work with it. But you said he's inadvertently done this. I mean, if the question were, he's done something wrong, this pill will prevent him from reoffending again without any punishment. Yes. So isn't that so, sort of what you... Well, it's, it's a question of... It's inadvertent and sort of lack of awareness. Lack of, lack of awareness and then... culpability this, itself. This, this pill gives him the, um, the understanding permanently going forward. Mm. Um, so I'm not talking about an individual who, uh, who due to circumstances uh, submits to a particular evil or, 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 or feels pressure, but is somebody who legitimately doesn't appreciate the extent on a moral level, on, a, on, a, on an empathetic level, to what he has done in the past. And he takes this pill, and having taken this pill, he understands, oh no, that's, that's morally inappropriate behavior, I should never do that, and henceforth wouldn't. Um, it seems, so this is obviously an idealized fictional scenario, but under that perspective, it seems to me, it doesn't actually do any good for society to be punishing this person. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm trying to get an understanding of what's in the best interest of society, clearly, rather than uh, a, a perhaps more vindictive approach that this person has committed this and therefore they should suffer just because they've committed this particular act. Yeah, so the, the, your question raises the philosophy of punishment. Why are we punishing people? And if we can prevent crime 
without the necessity for punishment, is there an imperative to punish the individual? And again, it will come back to your philosophy. Immanuel Kant, of course, took the position that there was a moral imperative uh, upon society to punish an offender for his wrongdoing. Um, I think today we, we have uh, even retributive sentencing philosophers have a quite different and more nuanced and progressive uh, approach that the punishment is imposed in recognition of the harm inflicted and the hard treatment or the, the pain of the, of the punishment of the sentence is there for preventive purposes. Uh, the expression that's often used is the, it's a prudential disincentive. So if we were all angels, this is one uh, analogy that's made, if we were all angels uh, and I were the sentencing court and you had been convicted of a crime, I would merely bring this offence to your attention and because you're an angel you would desist. Uh, but you're not. You're a human. We're all human and we can make mistakes. So I bring the, the offence to your attention through the sentence I impose and it contains hard treatment, it contains punishment, it contains something aversive. And this is a reminder to you that uh, the offence was wrong and will encourage you to desist. So again, this is a, a mixed model. There is recognition of the harm inflicted, mm. but also a desire to encourage you not to re-offend through this punishment that's being imposed upon you. As somebody who's an expert at sentencing, you've looked at many different countries, and many different places, and I'm guessing you're in a position to say, in terms of the overall benefits to society, in terms of the likelihood um, that individuals en masse will repeat crimes, in terms of the prevention of crime later on, there are some places that that do sentencing and, in fact, do uh, uh, incarceration and all the rest of this better than other places. Um, first of all, would you agree with that? And if so, where would be the places that you would point to as leading examples? It's complicated. You've, you've raised the question of best practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, if the man from Mars stepped onto our planet and said, I'd like to design a sentencing system for Mars, where do I go as a model on Earth? Uh, now, I think what I would advise him to do would be to go to the US and the common law countries in terms of his procedures. This Why is so? Because the model of sentencing in the common law world is to split the criminal trial away from the sentencing decision. So in a typical example, the offender's charged with the offence, he proceeds to trial, he hasn't uh, elected to enter a guilty plea, he's convicted at trial, and then we stop the clock, or it might be for weeks or months, uh, to allow the parties to create their submissions on sentence, pre-sentence report, uh, social inquiry report, um, inquire about the offender's amenability for various disposals and so on. And then we reconvene and we have a separate independent sentencing hearing where we will hear argument in favour of particular directions for the court to take. And there will be evidence introduced there and, and we can talk, the court can hear uh, argument about the appropriate sentence to, to be imposed. Mm. And I think that's a good model to follow because 
the stakes and the decision is quite different in a sentencing hearing from a criminal trial. Um, so in a civil law system these things are merged somehow? In a civil law system, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but the general approach is to fuse the trial and the determination of sentence. And a good example that we've all read about was the Amanda Knox trial in uh, Perugia uh, in Italy. Uh, she was charged with murder, as we all know, and at the first instance hearing, the original trial, uh, the court was deciding whether she was guilty of the offence as charged and also the appropriate penalty. So if you read the judgment uh, from the trial court uh, in uh, the Knox uh, case, they talk about how she came to the, from the US when was on her own and therefore subject to influences uh, and therefore this was in a sense um, a mitigation that had to be considered. But the point is they were considering two decisions simultaneously. Mm. Is she guilty? Has the state uh, proved its case to a criminal standard? And what is the appropriate uh, disposal in this case? Uh, and I think that's a mistake. It's better to separate the two, as we do in the common law world, um, and take our time with the sentencing hearing and consider the separate issues. Okay. So you'd, you'd recommend to the man from Mars uh, to look at, at common law countries because of their ability, uh, because of their practice of separating um, establishment of, of guilt or innocence and sentencing. And then having done that, having narrowed things down, uh, would you recommend any particular country or region or area which seems to be more progressive or more innovative or more effective? Well, my, my next advice would be not so much where to go, but where not to go. I would say stay away from the U.S. Uh, because I think this is not just a personal view. The general view of sentencing scholars around the world is that the sentencing uh, of offenders in the U.S. is excessively punitive. I'm not talking about the death penalty, although that's an issue uh, to be grappled with, but the sentences for felonies, more generally across the US, people spend years and years in prison for offenses that would not attract anything like that sentence in Australia, Canada, mm. neighboring Canada, or New Zealand, England and Wales, and so on. So the very high incarceration rate in the US and the very lengthy sentences of custody uh, are a big problem because they cost a lot of money, they wreck people's lives, um, not just the prisoner's life who's committed to custody for 30 years, but his family, his offspring and so on. Uh, the, the European jurisdictions, um, particularly the Germans, for example, impose far more lenient sentences, far shorter sentences of imprisonment, and fewer people go to prison in the first place with no apparent loss in terms of public dissatisfaction or higher recidivism rates. Whatever your indicator is, things don't seem particularly different in Germany compared to the US uh, in terms of the crime problem or recidivism rates or community opposition. And yet the sentencing uh, system is much more lenient. So I think I would encourage the individual to look at the European jurisdictions and possibly the Scandinavian ones, as well as Germany and uh, other countries, uh, because I think they have a, a more reasonable approach to punishing offenders. So two follow-up questions. 
First of all, why is it, do you think, that the incarceration rates and the more punitively oriented sentencing tends to be so prevalent in the United States? What is it about that society writ large that en encourages that or, or tends to result in, in that end state? That's what they call the $64,000 question. We don't really know why, uh, but it's been the subject of a great deal of, of commentary and scholarship. Largely, it has to do with the penal ethos. Uh, you know, if you've been used to very high airfares for all your life, uh, you're going to pay a high price and not really going to balk unless you hear that there are cheaper flights. American sentence lengths have been high for quite a long time. Americans have become inured to the uh, existence of very high prison populations. Um, and uh, so it's hard to sort of get them away from notions that uh, a serious felony uh, should result in, say, 15, 20 years in prison. Mm. Uh, in, in Europe, uh, there's been a tradition of having shorter sentences and fewer incarcerations, and this is sort of what people are used to. So partly it's the sort of context, what, what we're used to uh, in the U.S., the public generally, as you observed earlier on, reacts quite punitively, particularly to serious personal injury offences, crimes of violence. Um, and in other countries, the response, the penal response, on the part of the public and the sentencing process is more, more muted, more modest. Mm. There's also a, a, an effect that you alluded to, but we haven't been explicit about, which is that incarceration itself might very well be counterproductive from a societal perspective. I mean, one, one takes the, the, the idea of somebody who might be a first offender or not a hardened criminal or perhaps somebody who's even wrongfully convicted who's sent off to prison and after having spent time in prison for three or four years comes out a rather different individual who is more susceptible arguably to committing crime than, than he was when he went in. Has there been a, a wealth of scholarship on that particular issue? Yeah, so prison has, has evolved considerably. Of course, if you go back hundreds of years, we didn't use imprisonment as a punishment. Uh, we used prisons as a place to detain somebody to ensure that they were um, around when it came time for the trial. Uh, and then it evolved as a punishment per se, and people were committed to prison following sentencing. And, of course, now it's the primary unit of the sentencing process for serious crimes, at least around the world, at least around the Western world. Um, for many years in the 60s, I think in particular 70s, we began to see imprisonment as the solution to the crime problem. Crime rates escalated in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, the imprisonment rate, particularly in the U.S., began to escalate at the same time. The view was if we put more people in prison for longer periods, we'll have less crime. I think the wheels have pretty well come off that argument in recent years. Um, aside from the expense of imprisonment, maximum security prisons and medium security prisons are very expensive institutions. For young offenders, for women, they're even more expensive. The analogy I give is that a year in prison uh, in England and Wales, uh, for example, uh, would cost about the same as putting somebody in the Randolph Hotel in Oxford, which is quite a comfortable hotel. So it's an expensive option, and the question is, does it work? And if it were a very effective um, way of preventing crime or changing people, prisoners, 
then I think we might be more willing to use it as a sanction but the sanction but the reality is that it doesn't seem to work to prevent reoffending mm. the best example is studies that look careful multivariate studies that look at people sent to prison compared to people punished in the community and the recidivism rates tend to be about the same so whatever you're achieving uh, by putting people in prison for longer periods you're not necessarily achieving you're not at all achieving lower recidivism rates and at the same time we're now particularly in the US understanding what happens after release from prison and the effects of a sentence of imprisonment on the prisoner's life chances the ex-prisoner's life chances employment the impact on families, um, the impact of a sentence of imprisonment is not restricted to the prisoner, it ripples out across his family, across the community. Right. And so we've become a lot more concerned to use prison more sparingly, not necessarily out of some sense of humanitarianism, but, but more because it just doesn't work sure. and it comes with a terrible human and fiscal cost. Sure. I mean, just, uh, just in terms of effectiveness, if, if your, your goal is to reduce crime, um, one just has to see if it's working or it's not working. There's another issue which often comes into play when people talk about the American system, and that is an economic factor concerning privatization of prisons and for-profit prisons. And um, this is something which anybody outside of America, and maybe people inside America as well, but certainly anybody outside of America uh, looks askance upon or, or is definitely bemused by the notion of a, of a private prison or a for-profit prison. Um, so two questions about that. Is this something that, that exists outside of the United States? Because I, I don't know much about this, but I've never even heard of it outside of the United States. And, and in your judgment, is the awareness of a potentially deleterious aspect uh, into the judicial system uh, as a result of this economic factor, is that growing amongst uh, policymakers? So two issues. Um, on the general question of, of privatization, this is a universal phenomenon. So criminal justice has been privatized all over the world, including England and Wales. But we're generally talking about privatizing things like probation delivery, um, transportation of people to and from the courthouse or the prison, uh, things of that nature. Uh, it's the private prison um, experience that is almost uniquely American. The notion that we would devolve or derogate to a private industry um, the power to administer a state punishment five years in prison is, is quite uniquely American. And I think most other jurisdictions have steered clear of that, uh, arguing that uh, it's inappropriate uh, for private industry to discharge a public penalty. And of course, there's always the concern that the private industry will distort the sentence of imprisonment in a way that a private prison, and I think there is evidence of this in the US, that they do things like compress meal times because it's more effective in terms of shift changes for the prison or the correctional offices. Right. But so, driven increasingly by the profit motive rather than some other... Yeah, or the profit motive or, 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 or trying to ensure that the um, custodial experience costs the least. Uh, 
but I think most other ju jurisdictions, it's fair to say, have recoiled from that perspective and, and, uh, and have adhered um, to public prisons, publicly run prisons, prisons run by the state. Is it changing in the United States, do you know, or perhaps you don't, but do you, is there an awareness that this may have seemed a good idea on, in theory, but, but, when, but in practice it doesn't seem to be working quite the way that's envisioned, or, or not? So it may depend upon the state. Yeah. I think in the southern states uh, there isn't much pushback from the community or uh, others against private prisons. The academic community, scholars, legal scholars and criminologists and so on, have always been critical. Right. Uh, but I, I think the movement towards greater privatization of prisons has certainly slowed down in the US. Whether they're moving away from it and back to a state prison system, I don't know. Let's look on the other side of the coin. You had alluded to Scandinavia and some other European countries and uh, also uh, potentially England and Wales. In terms of doing things differently, um, in terms of innovation, in terms of innovation with respect to sentencing, with an eye towards improving the overall effectiveness to the benefit of society, meaning um, developing alternative uh, sentencing procedures so that we could reduce recidivism five, ten years down the road. Tell me a little bit about some of the innovative sentencing practices that have been uh, in existence for some time and, and their success. Or failure. Yeah, so sentencing has become a bit of a natural experiment around the world, different states, uh, ju jurisdictions, experimenting with other ways of punishing people. I, I think the most fruitful area has been the development of community sanctions. So um, Western European nations and Australia, New Zealand and Canada in particular have attempted to develop community-based sentences which have a bit more bite and are tougher than they used to be. Tell me a little bit more about those in detail. Yeah, so th these would be, um, for example, intensive probation. I'm using it as a general term. The disposal will be called different things in different places. But the offender might be placed on probation for 18 months. And now in the old days, uh, if you received a suspended sentence, say 25, 30 years ago, you were put on probation uh, you touch base with your probation officer intermittently, infrequently, um, and if you stayed out of trouble, that was the end of the sentence. Uh, nowadays, uh, and so that led to criticism, well, this is not really a sentence, he's just got to sort of behave himself, well, what's he doing to make up for the crime and so on. So today, um, community sanctions have multiple requirements, usually. Uh, they might involve a curfew. There might be a requirement to pay compensation to the crime victim. There might be um, sometimes with the consent or requiring the consent of the, of the offender, a requirement that they take therapy for something or other or follow an AA course and so on. Um, and so on the one hand, the time in the community on the community-based order is much tougher and more structured. and. At the same time, breach of any condition uh, generally results in a return to the court and the court may exercise an option uh, either to um, imprison for failure to comply with the requirements or make the order more uh, onerous. But the general point is that the offender is punished more effectively 
um, than in the old days in a community-based context, and that these kinds of sanctions can replace short prison sentences. Short prison sentences are the bugbear of most Western nations. They cost a lot of money, um, and in three, four, five, six, eight weeks, or even eight months, there's very little you can do with a prisoner. So they're just sitting in, in a prison, um, and they're not uh, doing very much towards their own reintegration. Right. So we've looked to replace those short prison sentences with tougher community-based options where the offender is, is given requirements and support uh, to encourage him to reintegrate in a way that will prevent reoffending. So giving the uh, offender encouragement is one thing, but there's also the other side of the coin, which is trying to assess whether or not the offender legitimately wants to rehabilitate himself or herself. Have, have any measures been invoked to try to better assess that? Well, when e whenever anyone enters the probation uh, regime, or even if they go to prison, there will be an attempt to understand the causes of the offending, of his or her offending, and the best route towards reformation, reintegration. Mm. And that will involve engaging the offender in trying to understand whether the offender grasps where the problems lie and what he or she can do about it. Um, and yes, there has been progress there and there we've adopted uh, more evidence-based ways of finding out what has caused the offending and what particular disposals will address the offending. Uh, and I, I think the, the more effective jurisdictions, and maybe the Scandinavians would be a good example of that, there's, there's more engagement with the, with the offender or the prisoner. So rather than imposing a sentence, uh, which is then purged or discharged by the prisoner or the offender in the community, uh, we work with the offender. So it's, it's a bit of a dialogue um, and compliance with the requirements of the order or evidence of uh, steps towards reintegration will be rewarded by the state. So a typical example would be you've been serving a tight curfew for a year, the order runs two years, if you were making good progress and showing us that you're working towards your reintegration, well we'll relax that curfew. and There will be incentives and we'll work with the offender. So it's an interactive kind of arrangement rather than simply off you go for nine months or nine years in prison. Is there anything that technology um, is directly relevant for here? So let me see if I can ask my question in a better way. If I were to ask you to speculate on changes, not necessarily improvements, hopefully improvements, but changes in sentencing practices, uh, let me be specific rather than ask you worldwide. So let me just say, let's imagine sentencing practices in England and Wales for the next 15 years. Um, is there anything that you might imagine that would occur as a result, directly or indirectly, of, an, of improved technology and increased technology? Well, the obvious example or candidate to change the face of corrections in England or Wales or any other uh, Western industrialized nation is electronic surveillance, whether it's electronic monitoring or some form of state surveillance, uh, so that we know what the offender is doing whether he's uh, drifting towards further offending or non-compliance. Right. Uh, and if we can accomplish that level of, of, of surveillance in a way that's 
uh, consistent with the dignity of the individual as a prisoner or a member of the community serving a sentence in the community, then it'll save us a lot of money. Uh, we don't have to put him in prison because the primary, I think, defense of imprisonment is that these people are too dangerous. We don't know what they're going to do. Uh, but electronic monitoring of various kinds uh, can give us a lot more information about the offender um, serving a sentence in the community. So if I were to ask you to speculate, and I know you're not big on speculating, especially <laughs> on camera, so uh, I'm expecting a little bit of pushback, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, how, not just the world of sentencing, but the, the world of incarceration right here in England and Wales uh, might change by the year 2040, what would you say? I think we will use uh, imprisonment far less. Uh, and I think it's, it's a salutary exercise to look backwards um, at penal practices 50, 100 years ago. And we used to uh, beat people. We used to have corporal punishment. We used to put people into administrative segregation, self, uh, solitary confinement. Uh, routinely, um, you recall Wild in Reading Jail, uh, the things we um, made prisoners do, mm. and now it seems um, barbaric. Mm. We used to uh, put them in debtor's prison as well. Debtor's prison, Marshall Sea, and so on. Mm. Uh, so that's all gone by the board. Um, and I think putting people in prison for anything other than a serious crime of violence or a s very significant financial crime uh, will be seen as being barbaric and counterproductive by 2040. We will have devised other ways and we will have been um, awakened, I think, more fully to the futility of imprisonment uh, for any purpose other than sequestering the extremely dangerous. One last question, um, which I'm expecting you to be even more reticent to answer, but, uh, but let's see. Um, I was going to say if you could be prime minister, but that's probably not good enough. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a magic wand to be able to change uh, not just the theory of sentencing in this country, but the practice of sentencing. If you could change one or more things concretely from today onwards in terms of how sentencing practices actually occur in this country, or anywhere for that matter, um, what would you do? I would require a lot of money to do it, but I would make the courts, give the courts the time and the discretion and the ability to make far more informed decisions about how to resolve a case, which is how you might generally describe a sentencing hearing, resolving uh, the criminal conviction. Um, and that would require far greater information about what works far greater information about the psychology of criminal behavior, uh, far more time to sit and think things through. Part of the problem at the present time is that the sentencing process, uh, as with many public services, is subject to great pressures. And you know, a, cr a busy criminal court, whether it's in Canada or the England, Wales, or the US, uh, it has a lengthy docket to clear and so it's one up, one down, and courts don't necessarily have the time they need.
counsel, advocates don't have the time they need to prepare their submissions. Uh, victims don't have the time and aren't given sufficient opportunity to represent their views to the extent that their views are going to be incorporated. So it's a question, like many things, of time and money. And we're short of both in the, in the current penal environment. You mentioned England and Wales, so I'm thinking there's Scotland where they have this weird other not proven verdict going on, and there's also Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, how do they differ from uh, what happens in England and Wales in general? So the United Kingdom, as we know, ha is, uh, is divided in that way. Uh, these are separate jurisdictions. Many of the, the um, criminal justice uh, laws that are approved in, uh, by Parliament for England and Wales will ultimately be proclaimed into law in um, Northern Ireland and Scotland, but there are important differences, and you've mentioned one. Um, um, but, but there are similarities, I would say there are more similarities than dissimilarities, but it is an independent um, judicial system and, and uh, this creates certain differences. Is there anything that um, we haven't touched on sufficiently or you'd like to add? You know what I'd like to add? I'd like to add an answer to a crisp, simple question. Why do we give, to go back to where you started, why do we give sentence reductions to people who plead guilty? Aren't most of them guilty anyway? So I think that's, and you might find that the answer will add to your previous plea bargaining discussion. Um, okay, so you're not going to actually give, give the answer? I'm going to give the answer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you paused. <laughs> yeah, I, I can just, you don't have to ask me, I can just tell you. Okay, yes, go right ahead. I mean, a, a basic question that many people have is what, why do we offer discounts to people who plead guilty? Uh, isn't it the case that the conviction rate is about 80-90%, so most people are char who are charged are found guilty, and so therefore we will assume that they were guilty. So why would we offer a discount to somebody for pleading guilty? Um, and that's worth considering because it's a bit of a misperception. It's not a discount which we just routinely hang out, ha hand out uh, to defendants who elect to forego their right to trial. Um, it's an acknowledgement that there are different kinds of people charged with criminal offences. And some individuals wish to take on board their responsibility, uh, acknowledge the fault that they have committed, um, provide to the extent that they can some redress, um, mitigate the harm created by the crime, whether it's with respect to the individual victim or the wider community. And they do that in one, one way in which they can do that is by entering a, a guilty plea. Now, a guilty plea saves time and money uh, saves having a criminal trial, saves running a trial, it saves victims and witnesses from having to testify. So it's in the interests of the, of the state, of the community, that people who are guilty and who wish to recognize their guilt, it's in our interest to offer them some reward for, for so doing. The reward shouldn't be so great that people will plead guilty when they are not in fact guilty, but there's nothing wrong with um, encouraging people uh, to accept their, the nature of their wrongdoing. And one way that we encourage them is by allowing uh, courts to reduce the sentence. 
Many people don't like the practice, but there is a sound principle principle underlying it, and I think uh, an element of sort of basic human psychology. Mm. If, if I, you know, have wronged you in some way, and before you start lecturing me or getting hot and heavy, and I say, look, I'm very sorry. Right. Uh, you know, but you're like, entering into a dialogue with, with someone at some level. You're entering into a dialogue, and I, I would like, before you, uh, you know, raise your arm in my direction, I'd like to apologize, and I, you know, I, I'm going to offer you some money for you know, wrecking your car, and I'll fix that, and so on and so forth. And so it's not unreasonable for you to say, all right, well, well you know, uh, I will do something for you. So guilty plea reductions, although they're often criticized in the media, and the public tend to be uh, unsympathetic to the practice, um, uh, are a good idea. And this is why I think that the common law uh, country gen countries generally all operate uh, such a uh, system. It's not just about saving money, it is about allowing the defendant to take that step and recognize his guilt. And engaging in that dialogue in some structural way. Indeed. Well, this was very enlightening. Thank you very much, Julian. I had You're a wonderful welcome. time. Thank you. Nice talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Law, along with separate discussions with Nita Farahani, Emily Hoffner Burton, Elizabeth Loftus, and Ellen Sachs. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. Mm-hmm.